Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. These Q&A, Ask Me Anything episodes are among my very favorite to do because my co-host is the great (laughs) Anna Koppelman, my daughter, who is a podcast veteran herself. So well, we have fun doing these together. We really do. I it's think this is maybe our fifth one. Is it? Is it number five? That's great. I think it started during the pandemic. Maybe maybe it's less than that. But I feel no, like maybe you did fun. one with me before. How are you doing today, Boo? You're in you're in uh, where you go to college, far away from me right now. Yes, but I'll see you in a month when I graduate. Yeah, how's it feel? You're about to graduate. If I could just do a quick AMA for uh, you. Right. Yeah. That's one of those really uh, maddening questions. Yeah. What are you doing next? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you yes? Oh, you're graduating. That's great. What's next on the what's what's next on the docket for you? Yeah, what's on the agenda? What's Jesus. the plan? <laughs> you must have so many plans. Yeah, so many. I'm proud of you that you wrote your thesis. That's a really big Thank deal. You. Thank you. Um, uh, I I was thinking we could start. How are you doing? That's actually what I should ask. I'm doing great, though. It's a really heavy time for me because my uh, the baby of our family is about to graduate from college. What's she doing next? Oh, my gosh. she got so many. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, yes. Yeah, start wherever you want. Anna. I love that you curate the questions and figure out what uh, we should talk about in this time and um, starting where you want. And, and let's go through it. I thought we could start here because it feels like a very uh, father daughter college question which is, does marijuana help or hurt one's rating? <laughs> I have, I have, I have uh, as they say, I have thoughts. Oh, I know you do. Okay, so the, the sort of standard answer is definitely, um, and this part's true, you don't need drugs to write. And I would say that 99% of the writing I've done in my life is on neither marijuana nor alcohol and alcohol for me useless if i have one drink can't write no mm-hmm. interest in writing somehow it makes the part of my brain that writes inaccessible like i know alcohol has been used throughout time by great writers and it it somehow is tied in but for me it is a blocker it does not help in any way pot yeah i mean weed can be If you smoke the exact right amount of weed or vape the exact right amount of weed, you and it's the right weed. I mean, there's so many like and it's the right weed at the right moment. It can help you access certain like lines of thought that you might not have gotten to Mm. a different way. But it also might for me, I can only speak, also might for me mean I wrote a bunch of pages that are useless. And a lot of what I write, if I'm stoned or even the slightest bit high, won't be usable. But I can think of a few different times when I did a pass, like not generating new pages, but where I did a pass on something after having vaped or smoked like two hits off a joint. And I definitely like got something funny that I might not have gotten to another Mm. way. It's a very kind of like 
mealy middle of the road answer because that's kind of how I feel about it. Like in college, weed was a huge negative for me. And so I didn't smoke for 20 years, you know, your whole childhood, I didn't smoke even one time. Like there was just none of that, but as pot became ubiquitous and legal and you guys grew up and moved out of the house, occasionally I would smoke and, uh, oh, oh, once oceans 13, I was working on it somewhere when you guys were away and I smoked once and I definitely wrote some stuff that I wouldn't have gotten to. That was maybe like the only time. Do you think it helps with anxiety? Like, do you think it makes you less anxious so you're able to write or is it just? Not for me. I mean, maybe not for me. No, again, that's like a thing of getting it. Like anyone who's like, does weed make you less anxious? Sometimes, sometimes it can make you more, right? Like, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it does. And then, but sometimes it totally can make you more anxious. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's not, it's like a big part of my creative process. I have a friend who's one of the biggest screenwriters in the world, just better than me at it. And I think he writes almost exclusively high. And it just, that's the way that that person functions in the world. But yeah. And then perhaps part of this is because of ADHD and, you know, part of my life, I would take medicine for that. And I definitely a hundred percent wouldn't smoke weed if I'd taken Adderall. That seems insane to me. So that in a, in a, in a way, you know, I could go a year where I'm, I'm taking Adderall and then a year, two years where I'm not, but that much, that has a, a much different and more profound effect than, than weed for me. Yeah. Okay. Another writing question. Um, how do you know when you're good at writing and where's the ultimate joy in writing? Is it in writing itself or the recognition of good work? So how do you know you're good at writing? Well, like even when ADHD was really bad for me and I couldn't finish anything, I was tortured and I was failing classes and having to finish three incompletes at the end of college and all that stuff. When I would write like a page, it was clear that something was going on on that page. I Mm. could, as my friend Derek Hass always says, from when he was young, he could write and make the reader experience the feelings he wanted the reader to feel mm-hmm. on some level. And I think, first of all, I, uh, although it was very hard for me to finish things and ADD was for me, it felt like a, a just a mountainous impossible thing to overcome. When I would find a little bit of a flow, I was aware that I had some control and that I was able to, that there was a very little barrier between the feeling I wanted to express and what I was able to express and that I was comfortable using words and also time would disappear. I mean, that's the more important thing. You know, I was blocked for so long and I couldn't do the work and I was so scared of it. But when I started writing, I would feel really alive. And it was the part of the day that I felt like I was working from the place in me that was most alive And the answer to the question about which is more important is that is what mattered. That feeling that I've described here before, but in case you're new to this, the feeling when you're hyper-present, but also barely tethered to the earth, that 
I think creative people get in various outlets, but for me, it happens when I'm writing scenes or writing an essay. This year, I was lucky enough, last year, 2021, I had this gigantic, for me, a huge monumental thing of getting to write a Shouts and Murmurs for The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And the writing of it, I remember exactly where I was. Mom was sitting across the room. I was on this couch in the house that we rented in LA or that the movie, stu- you know, the, the TV studio rented for us in LA. And I was sitting on this couch and I'd had a frustrating interaction regarding casting an actor. And I just sat there and I wrote this thing. And I remember as I was writing it, feeling like something had broken. I mean, I know you relate to this, Anna, because you're such a strong writer and because writing functions for you the way it functions for me, I think. Then I remember the release I felt writing it. and But it wasn't just like pure catharsis. It wasn't like dumping something out in a therapy session because as you're writing, I mean, that's the thing that writers get to do is you get to kind of recreate the world of, of these emotions and feelings and craft them for someone else's um, amusement or for someone else's thrill or, or whatever. And I knew I was writing this thing and it was fucking funny. And I, and it was what I wanted to say. And it was coming out in this really funny way. And having written it, I remember I showed it to mom. She was across from like, okay, I I just wrote this thing. Mm -hmm. And she read it and she immediately reacted. And I would say it was so strong because when I finished it, I was like, I think I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure this can go in the New Yorker. And mom was like, hundred percent. Now here's, what's fascinating. I then showed it to two other people, two people who are normally my best readers. And both of them didn't fully get mom. Who's always the, my best reader. She understood what was going to, where it was going to go. And she got it completely. And as you know, boo, she's the harshest critic, but she was like, this is great. You did it. Like that's a New Yorker piece. But then two really good readers were like, I don't quite, this isn't quite there. Can I ask if they're the people who read normally screenplays from you? Yeah, but both things. That Yes, screenplays, but they're prose people too. Um, okay, and but what do you think it was that they were expecting like a different style? I know what happened format? was they read it and they're because, because what mattered to me was the writing of this one. And because I knew I had mostly gotten there. I was say I remember I was like, oh, that makes me sad that they didn't get it. Then I just des- decided, okay, don't look at it for a day. And I put it away for a day. And then the next day I opened it again and I saw the gulf between what I thought was there and what was really there. And then I rewrote it. And mm-hmm. in rewriting it the next day, and it only took an hour and then an hour and a half or something total. But then when I rewrote it the next day, I was immediately able to take it and turn it into the thing it was really supposed to be, send it mm-hmm. back to them. They both got it. And then I sent it to the New Yorker. And, it, and I will say, yes, getting in the New Yorker and seeing the magazine laid out with my piece in it, it meant a lot to me. It means a lot to me. It it's probably after all the stuff like, okay, I'm a writer. I'm a professional why, writer. Why are you still searching for the approval? Right? It's a great question. It really is. But um, yeah. but it paled in comparison to the, just to answer the question, having a feeling 
being frustrated about something, writing it in a funny way, having the the transference of emotion that happens in that way and the emptiness that comes at the end of having written like that, that's the whole deal. The rest of it is great, but it satisfies something else. The New Yorker satisfies whatever I was scared about when I was 30, but it it has nothing really to do with the thing that made me want to do it and the, the actual writing, which is the main thing. And how do you know when your writing is good? That's the other part of the question. Is that when other people connect to it? No experience. I mean, that's just from like, you just got to do it. That's from just doing it. I mean, I think that's the wrong, like, I've been thinking a lot about, we use the word talent, but if we don't use the word talent, instead we use the word skill and we think about becoming more and more skilled. That's, Mm -hmm. I think, like you can just keep working on your skills. I mean, maybe part of the way is by reading. I mean, as you know, I read so many books, I watch so much stuff and you yeah, of course, look, the, the line between being brilliant and, and delusional is really thin sometimes in the arts, mm-hmm. but I don't think you can worry that much about if you're good. I mean, if everybody tells you you suck, I mean, I, I no, that's not even true. I guess I think if you're not, I would ask myself this, do a lot of people in my life tell me or think I'm mentally unstable in some way? And if not, <laughs> if so, like maybe listen to that and get to get help, right? Yeah, But if not, then, you know, rationally approach it. And, and you know, deep down, if, if you are, are capable of doing work, that's quality work, I think. There's also probably a big overlap between people who are called unstable and people who are good writers. Sure. about what you were just saying somebody asked how do you have the time to consume and study so many books plays mus- movies music sports etc and still be writing and producing a hit tv show how do you manage your time what does a typical typical day look like for you and i know that i probably said etc wrong you're gonna say it's you just said it right that time etc was i right that that's what you're gonna accept second time no i wasn't gonna <laughs> correct you i'm not gonna correct you on mic like that <laughs> you're, you're my interlocutor here, not my daughter. I'm not gonna. Everyone today has been saying the word interlocutor. I don't know. Really? Why. Yeah, I had it in like three different readings. Okay, that's wild. So the answer yeah. to the question is, well, it, first of all, I'm old, so I've been I have a lot of years behind me. Second of all, reading doesn't feel like work. I love it, so I just read at all different times. As you know, I take baths at night. I read in the bath that for like an hour. Mm-hmm. And I read very, and the other thing that, you know, and Sam and mom know is I'm like a, an absurdly fast reader. You so, also walk a lot. Yeah. So I walk around and I can consume media that way. I don't read a lot on audiobook, but some, and I do. That's music. You like, I feel but like the music is from walking around. That's right. Perfect yeah. point. That's right. Anna. I, I, I walk a lot. And when I walk, or if I ride a bike, like any kind of cardio exercise, which I do a lot of, I am constantly listening to music. I'm also talking about music all the time with Anna and Sam and a couple of their friends and then friends of mine. So I'm always staying up on music in that way. I would prefer to stay home and read than to go out most Mm -hmm. of the time. So that's part of it. Like I'm always fitting it in. I'm like Amy and I, mom and I just went on a trip to celebrate our 30th anniversary 
And like, we had a totally active time, but somehow I read three or four books while we were away. And so the answer is, it's just important to me and I love it. It doesn't feel like work. Mm -hmm. So a typical, and, and I guess a typical day as I wake up pretty early, I meditate and journal morning pages, the way Julia Cameron describes them. And then I, whenever, when people are in the house, I spend time with people in the house and then like, yeah, when I get in either the car or on a bicycle or I walk, um, listening to music and I have like lists of stuff I want to listen to, or I'm remembering mm -hmm. what I want to hear. Um, I love Spotify's different curated playlists. I also love a great way I've been getting exposed to music is Anna and I have one of those shared playlists on Spotify that they make a mix. So yeah. we're able to listen to each other's music and then Sam right. the act and I have one with him. So all those ways, I think we have enough time. Like, you know, you put your phone down and suddenly you, you got more time than you think. Mm. Oh, this one's kind of similar. Um, can you talk about your love for references? Characters and billions make more references than any show I've ever seen. And then I'm adding on to that, which is how do you decide what a particular character will know the references of? Well, on billions in particular, those characters know everything that we know and more. Like mm -hmm. they're smarter than we are pretty much. And they're culturally hyper aware. Dave and I have always had our characters express themselves partially through cultural memes and references. Even in our first movie, and get ready to take a drink because I'm going to say rounders, uh, we had characters referencing the outlaw Josie Wales, referencing like a restaurant in New York, Peter Luger's and Peter Luger and various other references like that. Plus the voiceovers constantly kind of like referencing it, other things like the Willand, flying Willandas and mm -hmm. Texas Dolly Doyle Brunson. And so from the beginning, and I think part of that is part of the way that Dave and I communicate with one another has always been through those things. We've always traded books and music and movies with each other, have this shared cultural prism through which we see the world. And it just makes sense. It's part of our what our, our voice is. You know, when you do this kind of thing long enough, you do have a voice. And I think that that's just part of the way that our voice sounds. You know, I think it's a good moment to talk about this, which is, yes, parts of the process of breaking story are intellectual processes. And yes, writing requires you to use your intellect. And you stoke that in various ways. You, your inputs are there to feed that. But the truth is when you're output, when you're outputting and writing, when I am, I would not really describe that as an intellectual process for me. It's not like mm -hmm. I think about, oh, I am going to use references here. I am writing in the character's idiolect, which I've decided long ago includes cultural references. And then it's just happening. I'm floating. I'm not really, I mean, it's funny, you know, you've seen me, I don't know what I look like writing, but like I know in our family, we have a weird family. Like I can picture what everybody looks like when they write. But you know, when I'm sitting on the couch with headphones in and my legs crossed and writing, I think I'm just in a different place and it's not mm -hmm. um, ordered in the way that what one might think is like an intellectual process is. It's just like, 
probably what a great guitar player feels like, you know, a, an accomplished guitar player feels like when they're playing the guitar, they've already learned it. They're, they're not really thinking about where their fingers go. They're, they've done that work already. Now mm -hmm. their fingers are just going where it feels like they should go. And that's what's happening for me when I write, we go back to that New Yorker thing, which doesn't have cultural references, really couple, but it's not, that's not what it's about. And there was very little there. It was the kind of thing where, and I'll return to it because it was so pure. There was nothing about it that was job-like. I was, I guess I was barely aware I was writing a piece. I just started like writing thoughts. And then suddenly I was in the middle of something. And then suddenly I had kind of finished a draft of it. And it was not a you know, scheduled appearance or a, uh, and, and, and that's in a weird way when the writing is, is best. And so when I'm writing scenes, those references just show up. And I think the same thing applies when David's writing or when Beth's writing them. Right. It's not a conscious thing. It's just like the way it comes through you. Yeah. This one's kind of a, uh, I don't know, but I'm going to throw it at you. I'm curious. You talk a lot about forcing yourself to write at the beginning because you were worried if you didn't, you'd essentially become a self-loathing dad. I'm wondering if you ever think about what would have happened if rounders hadn't hit and if all these years later you were still hitting your morning pages and turning out specs, but nobody was fighting and you were still headed to a day job after your writing time each day. Well, now I won't be able to sleep for two weeks with nightmares. Um <laughs> Obsessing about this question. I would say all I can look to is various low points along the way. And mm -hmm. the thing that got me through them each time was the right, like was the work. I mean, what got me through them on some level, obviously was my family. Right. But when we talk about the work itself, you know, when runner runner, was such an enormous bomb and Dave and I got fired off of um, the HBO thing. And we were told we were unhirable in the business. I mean, the thing that worked was just, you know, our family didn't go away on a Christmas vacation. We canceled it. And, uh, I walked to Central Park to our office and I just sat there and worked on the billions pilot. And which didn't have a home. It wasn't sold or anything like that. It was written on spec and like the doing, I was really, mom and I were really scared. You know, I mean, as you know, Anna, mom and I thought about having to sell our apartment and completely downsize and it was scary. But when I was writing, it wasn't. And mm -hmm. when I started working on the thing and it started to feel good to me, I got unscared because the work I remembered, oh yeah, like no one could stop me from writing. Mm. And when Rounders, the first reviews were written of Rounders, keep drinking people because I said Rounders again a couple times, even though that was the question. The, I will say the, the question asker brought it up. Um, like the two horrible reviews that came out at the beginning of it before the movie was in theaters, I really thought, oh, maybe we don't have a career. But I woke up the next morning and I was like, well, but no one can stop me from writing. And mm. so I don't know, like the doing of the thing is the thing that is the rep. I would say, yes, of course I had to support our family. I had to work. There was no doubt that I was going to do whatever I had to, to 
keep us in a life that, you know, you guys were all okay when I was. And sure, if, 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 if we hadn't sold the script, if it didn't get made, I'm sure it would have been very, uh, well, okay. I, but I will say this for the first bunch of months after we'd finished it, it didn't sell and we were rejected and David and I kept working. I kept writing. I kept going to my job, but I kept writing. And at that time I really thought, oh, well, maybe this isn't going to sell. So I think once I locked into this being the thing that was really important to me, I don't think I was going to stop. And I think I was getting a lot of nourishment from it. And I have always gotten a lot of nourishment from it. And I guess if that had changed, I would have found some other thing to do. I mean, look, I can relate it to the songwriting, right? I, I write songs. Uh, most of those songs get rejected. Uh, don't get sung by artists. I want to sing them. And uh, that doesn't mean I don't pick up the guitar and write the next song. I, I do. Because the act of writing itself is like an end in itself for you. It is for me, I think. I think so. I mean, look, it's a it's a fair, it's a fair line of inquiry. And I understand what's underneath it, that it's easy for me to talk about all this because it worked out. But if I look honestly at at who I was in the moments that it hasn't worked out or the moments before it worked out, other things might have shifted, but I don't think. I was going to walk away from doing this work. Hmm. Okay. Now switching gears slightly to a different passion of yours. Uh, somebody asked about your ping pong days and you seriously getting into ping pong and they're wondering what your 2022 ping pong is. Ah, uh, tennis. I mean, is that really different? I mean, it is different because it's a different like level of workout and level of kind of commitment, I think. Right. I don't know. It's either tennis or like playing guitar and writing songs. And yeah, I always will have some kind of like obsessive little hobby that I'm engaged in. Over pandemic, I started playing tennis again and I played as many days as I could and I still fit it in and I get a lot out of it. I always, I'll say like alongside the writing, as I, Anna, Anna alluded to, I mean, I exercise is super important to me and to my mental health. You know, that meme of my, my taking my stupid walk for my stupid mental health, mm -hmm. that is true for me and exercise is massively important. So I think tennis and then, and then, you know, playing guitar and writing songs has over the last few years really helped with my sanity. And so I, I do that too. Do you think that your like hobbies are an ADHD thing or do you think that you just like naturally? How would they be explain how they'd be an HD? Like how? that you like have to have a million. Yeah, sure. A different stimuli. Yeah. Stimuli. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. And then hyper-focused. Yes. I guess it, yeah. I'm sure that that's true. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Another fun question. Have you ever been moved to tears by a bite of food? What are some of your most emotional dining experiences? Oh boy. Oh boy. I know. Yeah. But I mean, it's usually because of the company and the, the whole vibe thing. Um, close though. Like when I eat Anthony Mangieri's pizza, at Una Pizza Napolitana, because it's so connected to these Sunday nights with your brother, 
you know, or mm. like if we went to a Momofuku noodle bar and I would look at you eating with me. And I remembered when you were 11 eating certain <laughs> items that in these sort of culturally correct days, we're not going to really dive into what the items were, but you know, there were animals involved. That sounds like really bad. Like I was eating like a body. Well, you were eating an animal's body. I was eating. Yes, you're right. And with the vegetarians I live with, we can leave it at. I that. mean, you were you were definitely eating <laughs> parts of uh, the animal known as the pig. I mean, that's yeah, that's true. But what I'm gonna say is like, yeah, but I don't think I restaurants I can get very I can get emotional in a restaurant because of a bunch of stuff when it's an. But I I don't really. Um, I don't really cry when I'm, when I'm eating. It's not the item itself. It's not like you're brought to tears from consciousness. It's the people or the memories. Okay. Um, Somebody wants to know what show other than anything you've been involved with was as close to perfect as possible. Oh, a show, a TV series that was as close, close to perfect as possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pilot episode of Mad Men is is extraordinary. You know, that scene when Don is asking the bartender or waiter in that, in the bar, those questions and writing that stuff down and the whole it's toasted thing. I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's a, it's pretty close to a perfect television series. Mm -hmm. I think Sopranos is the best show of all time, but I think Mad Men is really close. And I think, you know, there would be no Mad Men if it weren't for the Sopranos. That's why I probably order them that way. But there were episodes of Mad Men. I mean, talk about crying. I mean, there were episodes of Mad Men where not only would I cry, but like I'd be like standing up and clapping at the television. And and uh, and The Crown, I think, is a remarkable, like mind-bogglingly great television series. I, I can't believe how great that series is. And, and 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 some episodes of NYPD Blue, like you know, the last episode with Jimmy Smith, Bobby Simone, and 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 uh, yeah, man, works of art like that movies to, I mean, you know, I, I, I got to see the most recent cut of apocalypse now with Ben Shankman who plays iron billions and, uh, has been my friend for a long time. I mean, it was like, I mean, that's a perfect thing. Apocalypse. And did you guys watch that yet? You and your friends, mm-hmm. but wait, can I say something that will earn me a favorite child point? Yes. Okay. So out of your two children, one of them has finished mad men and one of them has not, and it's not who you'd normally expect. Wow. When did you finish? I finished in like high school. Oh yeah. 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 Right. Sam has never finished Mad Men. Doesn't think Is that true. Mm-hmm. All right. Listen, as I say, you are my favorite child. So <laughs> my favorite child. You must Only be one of us is doing that. That's the way that I, people often say they're so touched by the relationships I have with my kids when they hear them on the shows. And so they should know, obviously this <laughs> is the way I decide. And you know, we definitely have favorites hundred percent. We definitely do. um alex granichelli asked what's the best way to succinctly describe what the writer is to share of themselves in their fiction writing and 
depiction of character. I love Chef Garnaschelli. Guy Fieri calls her, has a great nickname for her, but I can't remember what all the initials of it stand for. Oh, Iron Chef, Alex Garnaschelli, ACAG, ICAG. Um, everything. I mean, that's the amazing thing. And maybe that ties a lot of this together. I mean, if you're doing the thing right, you're putting so much of yourself or your understanding of the world and people and culture. I mean, you're putting all of it into the work. And Levine said this to me a long time ago. He's like, you know, when you get to the, in the middle of, he's writing a novel, his first novel. He's mm-hmm. the most amazing thing. It's like when you're in the middle of a novel, every single thing you do all day long, it's like all for the novel. You're not even thinking about it as for the novel, but it all ends up for the novel. Mm-hmm. Everything you see and 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 touch and and read and a person you meet and thing you overhear, and I, it, it it's true. You know, my worldview and Mike Prince's worldview, or or Bobby Axelrod's worldview, or. Taylor Mason's worldview were totally different. But when I'm writing Taylor Mason, I'm fully putting myself into Taylor Mason's worldview, into mm-hmm. the things Taylor Mason cares about. And that's the reason that I can make Taylor Mason seem real. The actor does a tremendous amount of that. But the reason I can give the actor something to play that feels real is because of how much of myself I'm throwing into it. That's part of why I think, you know, the thing I talk about losing yourself, what are you losing yourself to? You're losing all of what's in you to the work, to the thing you're doing. And, um, you know, as I'm sure that Alex Garnaschelli puts all of herself into what she's cooking. And that's why she's such a remarkable cook. Hmm. One more. One more. Okay. Normally uh, the questions at least have like one sports one that I can throw at you but people really have been not as sporty as normal but this one i think is a good closer is it wrong for one's self-worth to be influenced by their wordle performance no not at all (laughs) i mean unless like you you're dyslexic like you're dyslexic boo and i'm not saying that i'm not putting that on you that's your own i don't play it for a reason you don't play wordle because spelling not really your thing no, definitely not. So what I would say, if you're dyslexic or if you uh, learn differently, no. But otherwise, fuck yeah, man. Judge yourself. How? Yes, I think it's a perfectly fine standard on which to judge yourself. Not really, folks. I don't want anyone who's like really taking me. See if there's anyone young listening. I don't want them to think I meant that. No, it's a game. Spelling doesn't matter. It matters less now than it's ever mattered in the history of the world since people mm-hmm. started, uh, like since the Gutenberg press. Ooh, um, that's one so, of the references that people right throwing references, throwing yeah. references. Anna Koppelman, where can people find you online if they want to interact with you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, but this is probably for now the main source of interaction. <laughs> is that every few months? I don't really. That's scary. But the, every few months, I can come on and ask you some questions. Love it. And I love you so much. And uh, I really do want to know your plans for after graduation. Everybody else, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on the Twitter. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. And uh, I'll see you next time, folks. Bye.